72 degrees out right now. We're going to see a low of 57 this evening. It's going to be cloudy all day long. We also have a chance of rain on Tuesday. And now it is time for Planet Watch. Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Today on the program, some would say that the upcoming midterm elections may be the most important in the history of our democracy. Evidence has shown that there was foreign interference in the 2016 elections. And there have been 21 verified attacks on voter registration systems around the United States. Now going into the midterms, how secure are our election systems? We'll talk with voting security expert Bob Kibrick, computer scientist, formerly with Verified Voting, about just how secure those systems are and what is being done to protect our right to vote. And we have a podcast to which you can subscribe for free at planetwatchradio.com. That's planetwatchradio.com. You can also support this program and its expansion into other markets around the country, such as just happened again recently here for Redding, California, um, by going to Patreon. That's kind of a crowdfunding platform for media efforts, uh, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Go to patreon.com slash planet underscore watch. And we would like to thank Michael Zwirling for sponsoring this program here on local station KSCO AM Santa Cruz. And before we go to our interview, here are a few headlines from science and environmental news. This one from Tommy Martin, our intern. With global oil production reaching a new high last year at 92.6 million barrels per day, oil spills are a consequence of our energy choices. New research from the University of South Australia looks to green mango peels as a cleanup solution for areas contaminated by crude oil spills. Using nanoparticles synthesized from the fruit's rich source of bioactive compounds and iron chloride, the new cleanup process breaks down toxins in oil sludge through chemical oxidation, leaving behind decontaminated materials and dissolved iron. The researchers say the new plant-based nanoparticles can successfully decontaminate oil-polluted soils by removing over 90% of toxins. With the, re with the recent announcement that the State Department has greenlit the Keystone XL pipeline due to the ability to quickly mitigate leaks, this research could become even more important in coming years. Thank you for that story, Tommy. What an interesting thing to use mangoes to clean up oil. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? Well, uh, it's an interesting turnabout if it's true, and it seems to be. Um, the Washington Post reported this week that buried in a 500-page report by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the NHTSA, in one of their environmental impact statements, the Trump administration made a startling assumption. On its current course, the planet will warm a disastrous seven degrees by the end of the century. This from an administration who has repeatedly said that climate change is a hoax. So which is it, a hoax or a disastrous event that's going to kill us all by the year 2100, which is pretty soon? Um, that is not based on a lot of um, what we consider credible projections, but anyway, it's in this report. It is a draft report, by the way, but this is what reporters do. They dig through these reports. Um, 
and it wasn't written to warn us into action. In fact, um, it was written to justify President Trump's decision to freeze federal fuel efficiency standards for cars and light trucks built after 2020. And California's laws, you might have just heard on the news, will go ahead regardless in 21, uh, in 2021. And the EPA uh, has challenged California's right to do this. But nonetheless, California is willing to go to court to defend our laws here in this state to lower... Uh, to raise tailpipe emission standards, whereas the EPA will lower those standards around the same time. So we're in a tailpipe war, and of course, California is a big state with a lot of drivers, so it will have an impact on the cars sold here. But uh, nonetheless, just the turnabout for his supporters who have been willing to say that climate change is a hoax, and his own administration puts out this report saying, not only is it not a hoax, but it's happening much worse and much faster than we thought. But the immoral part is, and we don't think it can be stopped, so why not just party like it's 2021? Kind of like the, it's nihilism. Uh, it's sort of like it's so bad, why bother trying to do anything about it all of a sudden? Uh, it reminds me of James Watt, uh, Secretary of the Interior, I guess, under Reagan, who's resorted to biblical predictions of, you know, the coming, I don't know, the rapture or something along those lines to the point that, uh, hey, we might as well just write off Earth. It's all going to be toast anyway. Uh, something like that. That seems sort of like what these guys are up to now, almost. Yes, there's probably a special place in hell for people who believe that you go to heaven and still hurt the environment. But um, we'll find out. Might end up being here on this Earth. Anyway, we're going to a very different subject for Planet Watch today, and I think one that is very connected to environmental legislation, which is something we've mentioned a number of times in recent shows. We've been talking ag policy, environmental policy, and how it affects the natural world that we're all hoping to live on for many, many years and generations to come. But without voting being uh, a secure thing, the people who get into office come in under a cloud of whether they actually were legally installed there with a democratic process. And that doubt has hung over our elections at least since the year 2000. And here to talk about that is Bob Kibrick. He has an illustrious career um, not only as an astronomy researcher in computer sciences at Lick Observatory, our local astronomy place here on the mountains above Santa Cruz County, but he has spent since 2003, devoting his time to helping protect our voting system from hacking and interference. From 2003 to 2008, he was a legislative analyst for Verified Voting, a national nonpartisan advocacy group dedicated to election integrity. So how safe are we going into the 2018 and 2020 elections? Bob's here to tell us a little bit more about that. And there's a couple kind of breaking news items I thought maybe we would start with, Bob get your take on uh, two of them. One is that Governor Brown signed into law a one-year pilot program, seeing whether Californians' elections are indeed being conducted without interference. And the second is that a bunch of people at a hacking conference found out there are tremendous vulnerabilities. Those are two maybe encouraging things that we learn more, but then we have to do more. So welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, as to the first item, Governor Brown signed yesterday a bill to establish a one-year pilot program to conduct risk-based statistical audits of elections conducted in California. And this is a uh, scheme that more efficiently will determine whether or not the 
machine tabulation uh, is accurate. And it's a more efficient way of getting the job done than the existing law, which mandates a 1% uh, a, a manual audit or recount in 1% of precincts in each county. So that's good news. And, and this is legislation that verified voting has been pushing for across the country. The state of California, uh, state of Colorado is also um, putting in place uh, such audits. The DEFCON conference in Las Vegas uh, just uh, issued a 50-page report that uh, came out on Friday uh, and respected computer science researchers and network security people uh, examined a number of voting systems in current use, both voting machines deployed in polling places as well as central tabulation scanners that are used to tabulate votes at county centers. And they found significant vulnerabilities uh, in all of these. Um, most disturbing is the uh, central tabulation system vulnerability was one that is potentially exploitable remotely uh, over the network. Can you explain what that is for those of us who don't know what that tabulation system is? That where they count all the votes uh, again, or what well, is that? Uh, vote by mail ballots, for example, need to be counted somewhere, and so vote by mail ballots that come into a central facility get scanned uh, at that facility as opposed to in the polling place. And so these are very high-speed machines designed to handle uh, ballot scanning in bulk. And they're connected to the computer networks of the county system. And the key question is how well those machines are isolated from the outside Internet. How good are the firewalls at county centers? And if people have done their homework properly and have taken secure steps to, to isolate those machines, then that minimizes that vulnerability. But as we've seen, even large corporations like Google, uh, Facebook, uh, ones that have infinitely more resources than your typical county election center does, they get hacked. The they Defense just got Department hacked. Gets Fa hacked. Facebook just got hacked yesterday. Yeah. They announced 50 million of their users, which probably right. you and I included, got hacked. So this this is a serious concern. I mean, a lot of county officials are doing the very best job they can to secure their systems, given the resources they have. But those resources are pretty scarce compared to, to corporations. And so if Google has difficulty preventing itself from getting hacked, you can imagine what states and counties are up against. This is going to be a really interesting show, and I wanted to make sure our listeners had a chance to ask questions. And you can do so on our Facebook page, which is Planet Watch Radio. If you go to Facebook, there's already a question on there that came in ahead of the show. And you can add to that question um, by emailing us yeah you can use the email address radioplanetwatch at gmail.com <clears throat> and by the way people might normally think of this as an environmental and science show and it is and all this stuff we're talking about uh i mean bob is an expert on computer science and math and that all that stuff is very intimately involved with all this stuff about the statistics of suspicious, you know, voter results and all this. So it, it, it definitely involves a lot of, you know, cryptography and intrigue. Plus, we're, the, our show is about solving problems. And we got a big problem here if our democracy is uh, kind of hanging on by a thread, partly because of technical 
irregularities. So we need to smoke those out and try to defeat those threats. So that's what we're talking about today. So do email us or go on Facebook and contact us that way during the show. And Tommy and Maya will be ferreting out some of your questions, so please do ask them. So, Bob, in, in a general question to start us out with, how vulnerable are we going into the 2018 midterms in terms of our election system security? I think that varies a lot from state to state and county to county. Um, for those of us who live in Santa Cruz County, I think we should consider ourselves very lucky to have uh, a county clerk who takes this uh, issue very seriously and a state uh, with its Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, who also uh, understands how serious a problem this is. And so um, I've been a poll worker for 15 years and um, I'm in, you know, I act as a precinct inspector, so I'm in charge of the polling place uh, where I work. And um, we have very elaborate procedures to try and protect against the vulnerabilities in these voting systems. We know uh, what the weaknesses are, and so there are protocols in place with security, tamper-proof security seals to make sure the machines haven't been opened up or the locks picked and, and viruses inserted. And unlike a lot of other um, jurisdictions, we do not use voters' smart cards to uh, validate each person who votes on, a, on an electronic voting machine um, because those are a possible vector for carrying a virus that can then infect the voting machine. Our, our county primarily relies on optical scan paper ballots that are marked by the voter. These, we think, are, are probably the, the best way of, of securing an election is to have a paper record that the voter themselves has marked, looked at, verified that this represents their vote. Um, and those paper records can and do get recounted uh, if there's an election recount request or in the case of a, an audit. Um, we also have electronic recording, uh, electronic voting machines in this county, but under California law, all such electronic machines have to produce a contemporary, contemporaneous paper record. So after you make your selections on the electronic voting machine, the machine prints out a paper record that you get to inspect before your vote is cast. So in addition to whatever vote is recorded electronically, there's a paper record that you've had a chance to see. Could someone have tampered with the machine before it was delivered? Uh, they could, but it's but if it's you know if you've verified that the paper record is correct, then even if the electronic vote is wrong, those get audited. Okay, I see. So those paper records do get checked in this county. And that's a law that just got passed. Is they have to do more audits, and they're putting money behind the audits. Well, we've we've been doing audits for years. The new law that was passed is is to come up with a more efficient and and uh, uh, more statistically valid way of conducting these audits. the The real risk is in other states like uh, yeah. Louisiana, Georgia, South Carolina, where voters vote on a purely electronic machine. There's no paper record whatsoever. And uh, we like to call these things a faith-based voting system <laughs> because you have to have faith that the electronic touchscreen choices that you made are being accurately recorded in some memory chip that you can't see and that you can't inspect. And so in, in those states in particular, it's absolutely essential that those machines be 
uh, guarded and, and, and security protocols uh, be used to re minimize the, the risk of these vulnerabilities being uh, exploited. The problem is it leaves you with a situation where you can't really answer the question with confidence, is this vote accurate? And so in a case of, of those states, um, there's no way to do a recount. There's no way to do an audit. And this is a very bad situation. And, and one that organizations like Verified Voting have been campaigning very hard for the last, you know, nearly 20 years to convince states to move away from these purely electronic systems. Perhaps it's a naive question, but why wouldn't states like Georgia and, and Louisiana want to move to a more trustworthy system for their voters? Uh, partly it's a matter of cost. You know, they have deployed systems. Um, a lot of the systems now in use were funded under the Federal Help America Vote Act that was passed in 2002 in the wake of the um, controversial presidential election in 2000 where there were all the problems with punch card voting and hanging chads and, and, and all of that. And so the federal government provided to states and counties several billion dollars to go out and buy uh, voting equipment. And most of that equipment now is, you know, 15, 16 uh, years old. Um, and funds are so far not being made available for people uh, to change unless states want to appropriate their own monies uh, or counties want to do that. Um, that's one uh, reason they're not being replaced. Another, there are certain secretaries of state and county clerks in, this, in those jurisdictions who have sort of uh, a religious fervor for these machines and, and think that this is the you know technology is good papers somehow obsolete and that they should stick with the electronic systems and i think that's a, a fairly misguided thing i'd like to talk just for a minute about because so much of how elections are conducted is either a state or local issue it's really important when you go to vote that you think seriously about the people you're electing to as county clerk or secretary of state. A lot of people say, well, you know, I, I vote for president, maybe I vote for Congress and Senate, but all these down ballot races, I don't know who these people are and it's not important and why should I bother? But these are the gatekeepers of democracy. These are the people who are going to determine whether or not, you know, you're, you're having an electronic voting system or a paper ballot, whether or not they take security seriously. And so if you care about how the next presidential or election is conducted, you really ought to care about voting for secretary of state, voting for county clerk, getting yourself informed, learning who the candidates are, learning whether they take these issues seriously. Now, um, tell us, take us back a little and connect us to the environmental issue once again to, you know, the Gore-Bush uh, debacle and tell us what happened there and why, you know, this is connected to an environmental story and right. why kind of didn't start there for the first time, but it certainly got worse. Yeah. Well, let's just look back historically. Um, 2000, we had George Bush running against Al Gore. Al Gore, clearly someone who gets it with regard to, to climate change and has had a huge uh, impact in the, the UN climate uh, uh, actions and, and whatnot. Um, 
Gore clearly won the, the popular vote, you know, over 500,000 votes. Uh, so if it were it not for the Electoral College, Al Gore would have been president in 2000. The U.S. probably would have signed the Kyoto Accords, and we would be nearly 20 years ahead in terms of having taken effective federal action on climate change. Fast forward to 2016, um, another case, Clinton won the popular vote, no debate, well, certain people like our, our current president may debate that, but I think most people agree that, that uh, Clinton won the popular vote by millions of votes, but lost the electoral vote. So here we have, and, and as a result, we now have a president who wants to pull the United States out of the Paris Accords. So two critical elections with respect to climate change, uh, both decided in the Electoral College, um, which in some ways is, is a vestige of a, um, a system put in place, you know, several hundred years ago that doesn't really um, perhaps meet what we would consider to be current democratic norms. I mean, in other, any other country, the winner of the popular vote would, would have been uh, the victor uh, as president. But our Constitution is set up that way. So short of a constitutional convention where you change the Constitution, what other uh, routes are there for uh, changing that equation if you wanted to? And, and what are some of the benefits and costs of doing so? Right. Well, one way to uh, change to, to a popular vote would be to amend the Constitution, as has been done a number of times. The likelihood of that happening in this case is nearly zero. It's a very steep hill you have to climb for a constitutional amendment. You need two-thirds in House and Senate, and you need three-fourths of the states to ratify an amendment. And... Um, given that, that many of the uh, states with smaller populations are advantaged under the electoral college system, uh, they're unlikely to want to you know, give up that power and uh, support such an amendment. But, th but there's a way around this. It's a um, proposal called the National Popular Vote. And if you want to learn more about that, the website is nationalpopularvote.com. And it if, if you look at what the Constitution says about the Electoral College, it's very brief. And it basically says it's up to each, the legislature in each state, to decide how it selects electors, period. Doesn't say it has to be based on a vote of the people. And early on in a number of states, it was not. The state legislature would meet and, and, and choose the electors. Um, and... All, currently, the 50 states, there are two schemes that have been used. Most states are winner-take-all. So whoever wins the popular vote in that state gets all of that state's electoral votes. Two states do not follow that model, uh, Nebraska and Maine, where the electoral electors are uh, assigned on the basis of who wins the popular vote in each congressional district in that state. And then with two of the electors uh, going based on the total state vote, uh, since each state gets two senators and, and two of their electoral votes come from that statewide basis. So um, the national popular vote is a way of putting together a multi-state compact where as soon as you reach 
enough states signing on that you have 270 electoral votes represented by those states, they all agree that whoever wins the national popular vote will get the electors from those states. Um, so this is an elegant way of addressing the problem of the electoral college without doing away with the electoral college. Um, it, the electoral college would still, in the end, meet and cast its votes, but you would simply be defining a new way by which the states in, uh, that join into that compact would select their electors. We had a comment from a, uh, someone on Facebook to this proposal who is saying, should the voters in big and populous states naturally and always get to prevail then over the voters in smaller, less populous states? If so, then a national popular vote would seem tailor-made to ensure such an outcome. But if not, then how best to keep the voters in the big states from bullying those in the little ones? He says the Electoral College, this is James writing, is one answer to that second question. What's your response to that? Well, um, are we, you know, should the majority uh, as a nation determine who the president is? And that's something, I think, on which people may differ. Uh, I think we, we have seen that the, uh, the, there, there are downsides. I mean, there are pluses and minuses of either system. The, the other aspect of the Electoral College is that it means that the campaign for president takes place in a very limited number of swing states. And those states that are determined not to be swing states for the Electoral College get ignored uh and and uh you know that that's uh, a downside as well so i mean there are a number of things that gives that states small states small population states would continue to have uh power through the senate uh, the national popular vote compact would not change that each state gets two senators whether it's alaska or wyoming or california even though we have nearly 40 million people and Wyoming has less than a million, um, we both get two senators. That so, doesn't seem fair. Well, so, I mean, <laughs> someone, who's right saying, who, someone who's saying, you know, big states bullying small states, well, you the could argue. Right. Exactly. You could They've argue already with. got enough disproportionate right. representation. Yeah, two for Wyoming and two for California. I mean, think about that for a minute when you're watching the Senate hearings uh, about a Supreme Court justice and you're looking at who's on there. You know, we've got two people in that room. Feinstein yeah. and Harris, and yeah. that's it. <laughs> and and if you go to the National Popular Vote uh, website, you'll see it has bipartisan support. It has support from big states and small states, conservatives and liberals. I think most people who have thought about this uh, realize it can go both ways. Mm -hmm. um, we've had two instances recently where um, the Democrat won the popular vote and the a Republican won the electoral, but it could go the other way. And, and you know, things have a way of... Of, uh, you know, the pendulum swinging both ways. And I think both parties realize uh, this this can work to their disadvantage. Well, so let me ask you now, and j just in, again, in case you're tuned in here, email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com or go to Facebook and go to Planet Watch Radio. This is really exciting, <laughs> this stuff that Bob is telling us. I first heard about it from him. It's a way to get around the electoral college that almost everybody you meet you know, 
gripes and moans about. We got to do something about the Electoral College, but you don't need a constitutional amendment, which is almost impossible to do it. Now, here's a question for you. Could we actually get this done by 2020? I mean, given the momentum it already has. Maybe. Um, it's been passed uh, in 12 states. And um, there's 106, 107 electoral votes within those states, is what I read. Yeah, and and we need we I, actually I think it's higher than that, but 172. 172. Yeah, that wow. sounds like the number. Okay, so we we need 98 more states whose electoral votes come to 98 more, and it, it it's passed at least one house of the legislature in 11 other states, who that that come to 89, I believe, electoral votes. So if you could get it through the other house in those states that have passed it in one house, you would be almost there. I'm and that's another reason, another reason why these state and local races are so, so important in these midterm elections. Was it Catherine Harris who basically single-handedly decided the Gore-Bush uh, election? She was a Republican in there it went you know it was, she had a huge amount of power in that story she was secretary of state in florida right well she was secretary of state in florida she was also co-chair of the uh uh bush election campaign now there's um, a conflict but, of interest well there's a conflict yes. of interest but we should also mention that the supreme court did have a role to play in in the bush gore election as well and that's another reason we need to be very watching the supreme court nomination process because there are indications that the current nominee thinks that presidential power um, ought to be protected at all costs there's some writings he did about presidential executive authority that are rather frightening and they are rather anti-democratic if you read them of course he denied still believing that but um you know, the proof's in the writing, not in what you say on the stand, which apparently doesn't matter. <laughs> so to learn more about this then, uh, and we can keep talking about it for a while, but uh, let's see, it was nationalpopularvote.com, right? Correct. And go there and find out about it and tell all your friends and family and co-workers and associates yeah, and, about it. And, and particularly if you have uh, family or friends in those states where it's currently under consideration and has already passed through uh, one house of the legislature, um, and they're interested in supporting this, uh, they should help advocate. This, this is really exciting. I mean, this is something worth working on. You know, I, I, I can see a whole new career for the rest of my life here now. But not everybody, not everybody agrees with you. And here's another person on our Facebook page, which a different one. So we have two people who are not agreeing with you. This person, Bob, says... The rural voters in America control the most land under the, other than the federal government, and they are vastly outnumbered by urban voters, and the disparity is increasing. Like affirmative action, they should get a stronger say. The liberal left should not try and squeeze them into a weak minority. You are asking for more problems and potential unrest if you do. Let's all try and find common ground and stop this partisan posturing. The complacent urban voter needs to wake up and vote. Well, so is this person going to argue that the system we have now is is perfect somehow? We're <laughs> nonpartisan in some way. I, I say no more presidents by weird technicality, which we've had twice now in the last decade. But isn't it true, too, that these 
late, latest elections have been so close that any degree of small a bit of tweaking, tampering, or messing with, or or hacking, or in this case, you know, legal maneuvering, is easier to do than if it were a landslide. It would just be much harder to tamper with something that was super skewed. Or is it that any election is hackable? Do you understand my question? It's more. It, it's easier to detect when uh, account may be suspect in the case. If you, if you look at the way risk-based statistical audits work, uh, the amount of ballots that you need to sample to reach a certain level of confidence, like 90% certainty, uh, is a function of the margin of victory. And the closer the race, the much larger number of ballots you need to manually count to reach that same level of confidence. And doesn't it seem like lately all the big stakes election come down to a really small number of votes difference? Well, relatively. In the, well, in the case, only because of the electoral college. Okay. Um, I mean, nationally, the result was very clear. There was no doubt as to who the winner of mm -hmm. the national popular vote was. And the president. Se se several million votes. Um, but in states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the, the margin of victory was much less than 1%. So, yes, in those cases, changing a small number of votes could have changed uh, the outcome of the election. Let's talk about the security of our voter registration system on the input end. We're talking about the output end of votes. Um, are we also to worry now that, you know, there's a lot of furied voter registration going on right now to try to up the number of voters on both sides so that people can get their people to go to the polls, but first they have to be registered. What is it I'm hearing that now that's vulnerable to, the registration system of registering voters? Potentially. Um, one of the other impacts of the Help America Vote Act of 2002 was to require each state to put together statewide voter registration databases. And, and that's a good thing in many respects because it enables things like same-day registration, um, which is not possible without a statewide system. Um, but to be statewide and, and online and allow people to register online means it's connected to the network. And so again, anything connected to the network, if you don't have sufficient network security, if you don't have adequate firewalls, it's potentially uh, hackable. And in 2016, uh, the government determined that the voter registration databases in 21 different states were very uh, definitely assaulted by foreign actors who probed and poked and tried to, uh, you know, crack the systems. And in the, in the, I believe it was the state of Illinois, um, they were successful in breaking in and stealing 500,000 voter registration records, including the non-public data. A lot of what's in the voter registration database is public, your name and uh, party affiliation and, and political parties buy this data to figure out mm -hmm. who they want to send literature to and phone calls and so on. But other things like your birth date, your driver's license number, your social security number, that's confidential. And uh, that confidential data was breached. Okay. Now, what the foreign actors did with that data, did they use it in an identity theft thing to, to get apply for credit cards or mortgages? Maybe. Uh, who knows? Uh, but from an election standpoint, getting access to that data gives somebody enough information to put file a, let's say, an absentee voter request. 
and have the, your ballot sent, you know, goodness knows Russia, where. Yeah. So the, we, the, the fact that they stole that data has implications. So we just had an outrageous statement amidst all the noise of the last week's uh, uh, news cycle. We heard President uh, Trump say that the Chinese were hacking our 2018 elections already. What basis, if any, does he have for that statement? I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm not privy to any uh, data on that. Well, along those lines, let me just, two things I want to throw out that I think are related and appropriate here. Uh, you know, you go to an ATM, you trust your finances to a secure, accurate ATM. You would think if you're going to have voting machines, they ought to be at least as secure and accurate as an ATM. But the other thing is, these things, if they can be hacked or whatever, at least the software that they use should be open source. It should not be proprietary where some damn company owns it and you can't get at just how they are tabulating the results. Can like you say Diebold, something? The company yeah. Can you say something about those issues, how relevant and correct and appropriate they are here? Yeah, it, it, it's a concern. Uh, most of the voting systems are, in fact, nearly all of them are proprietary uh, voting systems. The the software that counts your vote is considered to be a confidential trade secret of the corporation that built the machine. Um, in some cases, that has to be disclosed under non-disclosure agreements to uh, government panels, but that varies from state to state. There are efforts being made, and, and there was legislation uh, in California, unfortunately, that did not progress to fund a open source uh, voting system for California. I hope in the next legislative session uh, there'll be another attempt to do that, and I would love to see California uh, pave the way for the rest of the nation and implement an open open source system that everyone could see and, and verify. If you just joined us on Planet Watch, we're speaking with Bob Kibrick. He's an expert in voting security and computer science, and um, we're talking with him about our upcoming election system. I believe we have another question that's come in. First a comment, then a question. The comment is to the listener who suggested that those with more land should have more representation. This takes us back to the days of serfs and nobles and gives the power to the wealthy. Isn't that the opposite of what democracy is supposed to be? So that's the comment. And then the question is, how can you be sure that the electors for each state would select the ones determined by popular vote? Don't they have autonomy to vote for whomever they choose? Uh, no. There have been faithless electors who have violated um, their, you know, agreed-upon role as electors. But, you know, in, and, and different states have different uh, ways of dealing with that. But the number of times there have been uh, electors who have deviated from the prescribed method adopted by their state legislature is very small. There was so the a last-ditch effort, I believe, during the Trump uh, election right at the very end there that they were trying to get electors to jump ship and thought they actually might, and they were working on them to do so and mm -hmm. failed to do so. But so uh, I believe there was one. One person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to know who that is and go interview them. <laughs> but so the point is here, the prescribed system that, that the state legislature agrees on right now for most states is the winner take all. Correct. Uh, but it could be more the global or the national total winner will take all. Correct. Is, is the idea of this, of this new approach that is totally doable. Hmm. 
Interesting. We just have a little bit of time left, so if you do have a question for Bob Kibrick, in fact, there is one more. Oh, there's another comment um, from Jay Smith. Partisan posturing in this nomination started long before Kavanaugh's nomination, but certainly was employed with his nomination. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Hey, hey, I got... Oh, Bob has something for us here. Yeah, since we're getting low on time, just... Uh, we still got plenty, actually. Well, take your time. You know... <laughs> Voter registration deadlines are coming up. These differ from state to state. While in many states you have till later in October, uh, other states like Alaska and Arizona, uh, Arkansas, uh, Indiana, and so on, the deadline for voter registration is coming up either October 7th or October 9th. So uh, if you're not registered or if you've done anything that might cause you to need to re-register. Like if you've moved, if you've changed your name, the deadline for getting registered is, is coming up like within a week. So don't <laughs> keep putting it off. Um, the other thing for people in California who have had recent transactions with the California DMV, you might want to check your voters, voter registration. Uh, there was a major IT foul up in which the Department of Motor Vehicles uh, sent incorrect voter registration data to the uh, Secretary of State's office for, I think it was uh, several tens of thousands of voters. And so uh, just by bureaucratic foul-up, if you've had recent dealings with the DMV, they might have mucked up your voter registration. So there are a number of sites you can go to online to check your voter registration. It takes no more than two to three minutes. And it's a good safety check. You don't want to end up going to the polls and suddenly being told that you're not registered or that you're in the wrong precinct because some records got fouled up somewhere. I'm kind of thinking that that's, if there was one takeaway from this whole show, something that we can all do and all must do is, you know, check your, I mean, first register if you haven't, but check your registration early and often. Uh, There are all these mysterious machinations and skullduggery going on whereby people are thrown off the voter rolls. They do not find that out until they get to the polls on Election Day. Okay, then they're given a provisional ballot that may or may not be counted. Probably more often than not, it ends up not being counted. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. But there you go, Bob. Go ahead. Okay. And and the handling of provisional ballots... uh, ought to be uniform across the country. Unfortunately, it's not. Some states don't do as good a job as others. California uh, in general, and this county in particular, goes out of its way to make sure that every provisional ballot that can be counted is counted. And uh, I know our county clerk goes to great pains to, to make that so. Aren't there some countries that just automatically register you? Either, you know, you turn 18 and you're registered. You have to register for the draft. I mean, for the recruitment military when you're 18. So why shouldn't you have to register to vote when you're 18 as a mandatory part of becoming an adult? I I don't really understand why we haven't made it something. You know, you, you can't force mandatory voting although some countries do, but you certainly could uh, automatically, not mandatorily, automatically register everyone. Yeah, uh, you, you could, and California is taking steps to at least move in that direction. It's now possible for high school students at age 16 to pre-register, uh, and then the day they turn 18, they're, they're good yeah. to go. 
the other thing for those who do, at least in California, this is unfortunately not the case in many other states, but in California and, and a few other states, there's what's called same-day registration. Um, so even if you miss the deadline, if you go to selected locations in your county, you can actually register and vote on Election Day. In fact, in California, if you miss the voter registration deadline, on, which is on October 22nd, then from October 23rd through Election Day, you can still, if you go to one of, in, in, in uh, our county, it's the county building uh, on Ocean Street or the Watsonville City Hall or the campus, in any of those three locations, you can get registered even past the deadline. We have changed hmm. behavior around smoking. We have changed behavior around drunk driving in this country by a relentless media message about the dangers of smoking or drunk driving. We have not, as far as I can tell, constantly beaten the drum about voting. And it seems to me, <laughs> in order to save our democracy, we ought to, because guess how many, what percentage of 18 to 26-year-olds voted in the last midterm election? Anyone want to venture a, a number on percentage? It's down below 20%, I think, right? 14%. Yeah. So we got to do better than that. Well, here's a fact. Looking at our 20-year-olds <laughs> in the room, 20-somethings, um, you're probably registered, but we need to get the message. And when I ask my students who reads a newspaper, I think it is connected, about four of them out of 25 raised their hand. So how could you be interested in politics or elections unless you actually read about them and think about them? We have a comment, another comment from Jay Smith. But do we really want people who aren't interested in politics or the process to be automatically registered to vote? Yes, because then maybe they will become, because they feel that sort of the pressure, you know, it's like, well, you, you get your license to drive. Are you going to never drive a car? Yeah. Are you going to eventually learn how to drive that car? Yeah, you probably yeah. are. And, and there's another reason as well. And though they may not read a newspaper, if you're registered to vote, at least in California, you will be mailed a voter pamphlet, you know, several weeks or a month before the election that lays out here's what's on your ballot here are the arguments for here are the arguments against okay and you know it's 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 going to come to you whether you open it and read it it is another matter but that's uh, a byproduct of your registering we haven't and heard from Maya yet. Here's Maya. We also have to, in, in response to that comment, we also have to remember that those, even those who aren't is interested in politics are still going to be affected by it, no matter what their personal interests are. So we should do all we can to encourage them and make them feel like they are automatically a part of our system, because they are. And here's a challenge for you folks. This is a fact. This may sound partisan, but it is a fact. There have been numerous prominent Republicans in recent years and decades who have gone on record not only pointing out the fact that when more people vote, Republicans generally tend to do less well in elections, but they also have actively actually advocated for the state of affairs where less people vote because that's good for the Republicans. That's a fact. I can provide you all the documentation you need on that. Tom Hartman can provide you that documentation. Another thing, by the way, speaking of documentation, go look at the uh, film, the video by Greg Palast, P-A-L-A-S-T, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. It highlights this horrible scam called interstate cross-check, the, the pet 
project of uh, Secretary of State of Kansas, Chris Kobach, under the guise of trying to screen out illegal people, you know, people illegally voting twice in two different states, which is a ridiculous idea. Anyway, they have thrown um, hundreds of thousands of voters off the rolls at the last minute in especially the key states that swung this past election, the presidential election in 2016, and they're trying to do even more of this. Anyway, you need to see this. Everybody needs to see that. And maybe, Bob, you probably know about this thing, this interstate cross-check. I think they're trying to expand it, but... Uh, Isn't that where if you have a similar name to someone yeah, else, correct. they just eliminate you? <laughs> yeah, and, and this is similar to what went on in Florida uh, in 2000, where... Uh, they did what was called a felon purge to make sure that convicted felons weren't on the voter rolls. But the matching rules they used to match voter names to the list of felon names were fairly loose. And so a number of people who had the misfortune of having a name that was similar to someone who was convicted of, of a, a felony uh, were dropped from the rolls and did not discover this until they got to the polling place. And in 2000, there were, what, were no provisional ballots, and those people were denied their right to vote for no good reason. So in, in, in all of these cases, checking your voter registration status early uh, and a, often early and often <laughs> is a good thing to do. It's easy to do. And if you find a problem, you have time to correct it. Where is our Congress and all that, this? I mean, they're supposed to protect our democracy, just like we are supposed to do what we can individually. But it's ridiculous to think that as individuals, we can protect that right alone. That's what we have governments for. So where's the money allocated to fix <laughs> what I'm hearing is a pretty broken system that's at, in danger of collapsing under its own inadequacies. Um, so where are the movements in Congress and what laws might there be that might replace the Voting Rights Act? Because we had a pretty wonderful piece of legislation that they let lapse that was protecting a lot of these things about polling places and, you know, having them accessible to everyone so that you didn't have to go all the way across town to vote. And now it seems like those are unraveling. So what's a, what's a foot in the positive that might give us some hope that some of our elected officials are concerned about the mechanics of our democracy? Yeah. Uh, in, in the current session of Congress, there are probably a dozen or more bills that have been introduced to address some of these issues, both the voting security issues, voting rights issues. Some of these actually have bipartisan co-sponsorship. Um, there's the Protecting uh, or Securing America's Elections Act, H.R. 5147, Secure Elections Act, um, in, in the Senate as well, restoring confidence in Ele America's Elections Act. There's a, a vote, another updated voting, and and unfortunately, um, are these bills are not moving. They are consigned to committee. They get a hearing or they don't get a hearing. Uh, these are not making them to the floor because the congressional leadership apparently does not consider any of these things to be a priority, and you know it. These are not new problems. I mean, we've known about this stuff from 2016, but as I say, verified voting has raised the alarm on this for the last 15 years uh, in multiple sessions of Congress, and Congress has really been AWOL in terms of addressing... But you can go to verifiedvoting.org, right? Verifiedvoting.org. And I believe Tommy has a question that and then came, I need came one in minute. over the transom. <laughs> I need one minute before the... <laughs> actually, it's actually my own question. I've been thinking the only branch of government that isn't elected by the people is the judicial branch. And obviously everybody's been thinking about 
that a lot this week, and I'm just wondering what you think about the possibility of electing judges to the Supreme Court, um, considering it seems that that's become a partisan form of elections already. Well, uh, again, that's something that would require probably a constitutional amendment. Um, the Another possibility that has been proposed is to have staggered appointments so that, you you know, as it is right now, it's kind of a roll of the dice as to how many presidents or how many Supreme Court uh, appointments a given president might be able to make, uh, you know, uh, depending upon the age and, and, and health of, of court members. Some presidents may get to appoint none. Others may get to appoint several. So one proposal that has been floated is to give Supreme Court justices not a life term, but an 18-year term, and to have them staggered so that every two years another appointment comes up. And that would tend to, you know, give a little more balance to uh, how often and, and how many, you know, each, each president would be assured at least of, of uh, you know, two appointments under, under that model. And somebody says you can add numbers to that court. Is that true? <laughs> I did not know you could get beyond the number nine. FDR tried to do that, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Well, good good thinking, good ideas, and uh, we all got to get out there, check our and everybody else's registrations early and often. And by the way, everybody in the country, whether or not they are your U.S. senator, write letters this week, call fax Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine. It will make a difference. And Manchin um, as well. Even yeah, Jeff yeah. Flake. Yeah. Right. Yes. And now I got now for some cosmic relief. Well, let, gotta, let us thank our guest. <laughs> yes, Bob Kibrick has been our guest here on Planet Watch. Bob, thank you for being here. It's been Did a you have a final pleasure. thing? A final thought? Just a reminder: don't ignore those down ballot races. Secretary of State, County Clerk, find out who's running. Find out who cares about election integrity. Give them your support. Great, great. Thank you. Okay, from your lips to God's ears. Okay, so happy October Eve. This is one of those short months. It's September 30th, but this is October Eve. And by the way, this is the 100th anniversary, actually yesterday, September 29th, of our theme music for this program, Planet Watch, which is Gustav Holst's The Planets. It's the Jupiter track of that symphony. And it was first aired at the, or played live at the Queen's Hall, conducted by Adrian Bolt, the famous conductor who's a friend of uh, the composer, Gustav Holst. And so uh, this is the 100th anniversary of our theme music, you know, give or take a day. <laughs> so enjoy that as we uh, close out the program. Everybody keep an eye on the sky. This has been Planet Watch. Thank you for listening. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and we'll see you next week.